All right. Well, hey, good morning, Arbor. How are you on this fine sunny day? It's sunny. Hey, it is sunny. Nice. All right. Well, welcome. Hey, uh, if you got your Bibles, if you brought them, got a phone, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we'll be hanging out today. Uh, in the meantime, let me bring you up to speed. We are in a series that we're calling Questions That Jesus Asked. The whole premise, the whole idea is this. Jesus asked a lot of questions, actually 173 different questions throughout the gospel is what he asked. And every time he asked them, he didn't ask a question because he was clueless and didn't know the answer. Uh, he asked the questions because he, uh, he was wise and he wanted us to discover the answer. So he never actually asked a question for, to gain information. It was always to educate, to give information to us, to teach us, to point out something that we're missing or to ask the question that we should be asking, either because we're too afraid to ask it or we're too unaware to know we should be asking it. So Jesus asked questions for a purpose. Again, 173 of them. And today we've gone through, uh, this will be the sixth one. Uh, that we've gone through, but I believe that at all the questions, at all 173, that this is the most important question that Jesus asked. Not only do I think it's the most important that question he asked, I think it is the most important question that any of us will ever answer. This is the question. How we answer this question will be determine how we answer every single question that follows. And the question is this, Jesus asked this huge question. He said, who do you say I am? It's the biggest one he asked. Who do you say I am? And so today, because the talk is a little on the heavier side, I thought I'd lighten it up as much as possible, starting out with a game, a little bit of my youth pastor roots coming out. And so we're going to play a game entitled, Who Am I? I really want you to participate. All you have to do is yell out loud. So here it is. Here's how it works. There will be a person we'll put on the screen. I, once you identify who that person is, go ahead and shout it out. It's how it works. So here you are. First and foremost, if you know who this is, go ahead and tell me. Perfect. Yes. I wanted to make it easy on the first one. So you're welcome. The first and the second one are pretty easy. Here's the second one right here. Abraham Lincoln and... Einstein. All right, now we're into the game, okay? You see how it works. It's a blurred image. Here you go. First one, next one coming up. Who do you think this person is? That's amazing. You guys got that well. Elvis Presley. Literally, that someone, I, oh yeah, you guys did way better than first service on that one. All right, maybe not that hard. Try this one right here. Who do you think this is? Michael Jackson, I heard that. That's really funny when you find out who it is. So, Michelle Obama, that's pretty close. Nice try, Kara. It is Oprah. There you are. Or Michael Jackson. He went through several stages with his look. Okay. Oh, I heard Conan O'Brien. Any other thoughts? Who do you think this is? That was pretty close, though, actually. Ricky Nelson? Nope. Pastor Garrett? Nope, this guy's a lot more attractive than Garrett, for sure. All right, here it is, right there. His name is, there you are. Yes, Jimmy Fallon, there he is, king of late night right now. Okay, next up, who do we have here? It's going to get a little bit harder. You can figure this out. Oh, my goodness, that one was supposed to be hard. Yeah. You know if I made this game, you know we have some sort of Star Wars reference inside of it. So there you are. Okay, next one coming up. Here you are. Who's this? I heard it. 
Beyonce. Mike, how do you know that? Okay, your wife. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet it's your wife, of course. <laughs> yep. We'll check his eye. <laughs> yeah, whatever. All right. <laughs> We're going to move on. Next one. Who do you say this one is? This is a little tougher. There you go. That is correct. This is Elmo. It is a person, yes. All right, here we go. Check this one out. Who do you think this is? Oh, I hear a lot of O's. Oh, oh, oh. There you go. We have a few saints in the crowd. Jesus. I would hope that you guys would get that one of all of them. Amazing. Now, we, uh, we play that game for a reason. Trust me, there is a point to it. Uh, the point is this is the picture when it comes to Jesus, right? When he was on earth and even now to a lot of people, even to people inside of this room can be a little bit fuzzy, could be a little bit out of focus. Ever since Jesus left the planet and actually even while he was still on the planet, there was apparently some confusion around this question, who was he? People have pondered this. People have wondered this, the meaning of his life. There are lots of opinions. In fact, the pastor down the street, Judah Smith, um, at City Church, now called Church Home, uh, they actually did a series years and years ago, and it literally went national with just this title, Jesus is blank. And you've probably seen the bumper sticker of that around. It just went all over the place. The reason it caught on is because there's something inside our culture where we are wanting to know the answer to that question. And there are a lot, a lot, a lot of opinions and a lot of division when it comes to who Jesus is. Jesus even called this division out when he was on earth. Here's what he said. He said, they, speaking of mankind, they will be divided. About what? Here's what they're divided about. About him, father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. And, and this one's not too surprising, but uh, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That naturally was going to happen, especially uh, when you're newly married and you compare the, the cooking of the two, um, you know, to your wife. You say, my mom didn't cook it that way. I never, I stopped saying that, all right? I learned the hard way. I don't say that anymore. But there's a lot of questions and it's a lot of question about who Jesus says he is. And so he asks the question, and it has been intensely debated. It has been intensely debated, and it is also essentially important, the answer to this question for, for mankind, for your life. And here's why it's important. Only by knowing the true identity of who Jesus is will you ever, can you truly know who we are. Only by knowing his identity can we discover our identity. We spend our whole lives trying to figure out who we are. We try to decipher and to discover who I am on the inside. We're trying to figure it out. And I would argue that you will never be able to figure out who you are until you figure out who he is. And it was the same with the disciples. Jesus got this. They, they, you know, in order for them to figure out who they were, their mission, their purpose, why they were here, they needed to know who Jesus was. And so Jesus asked them point blank, who do you say that I am? And so let's read that passage. Um, I've asked Anna if she would. She's standing in the back. If you would just read this passage, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Go for it, my lady.
Thank you, Anna. Appreciate it. Well, if you're just visiting, here's how it happens around here. Our goal is we have topically titled sermons, and we try to deliver them expositorily. And basically, we're walking verse through verse, and we're breaking it down. And so let's start with verse 13. We'll go through that and through the whole entire passage. Here's what it says. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi was located in the far northeastern corner of ancient Israel, about 25 miles north of Galilee. At the time when Jesus was on earth, it was largely populated with, um, with uh, Gentiles or non-Jews because for centuries in this region, it was known for its idol worship and pagan religion. And so this is the place. This is not a place that a devout Jew would go, but yet this is the place that Jesus takes his disciples. Um, look at this picture here. This is a picture of Caesarea Philippi, a very famous location in there. During the time of Jesus, uh, the city would have sat on the base of this massive uh, cliff face. And this is where the common folk would live. And, um, and just above this, this cliff face was a temple that was built for Caesar where he could oversee the people. Notice the notches inside there carved out of the rocks. Those were meant to hold idols, pagan idols. That's where they used to sit. To the far, far left, not the entrance that looks like a door, but the big cave-looking thing. That cavern was referred to as the gates of hell in Jesus' time or the mouth of Hades. They believed that that's where the demons of the deep would be, if you will. And it was here, possibly even in this exact spot, where Jesus started this conversation. And he starts by asking the disciples, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? He starts with the theoretical, kind of up here. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is a phrase that, that, that um, Jesus would use. He actually said it 81 times about himself. It's the most common name that he gave to himself. It comes from Daniel and Ezekiel, and it has a lot of messianic foreshadowing in the name itself. And so they're asking, who is this? You know, or Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? The first six or 14, the disciples respond. Some say John the Baptist. Now, if you've been to church any little bit of time, you might know who John the Baptist is. Uh, he wasn't actually a Baptist minister. That was what he did. Uh, he was Jesus' cousin. He's a wild man. He lived out in the wilderness, ate locusts, and he was calling people of Israel to repent and to be baptized. And recently, he was beheaded. And so what the people are saying, what the word on the street is, is that you are John reborn. That's who Jesus is. You are John come back to life. And he goes on. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Now, Elijah is one of the coolest prophets that were ever out there. He's the guy who stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the prophets of Baal. And he even mocked them in this exchange. And he called down fire from heaven to come down and hit the altar. He was amazing. Now, the reason, this is cool, the reason that they think it was Elijah, that Jesus was Elijah, is because there was this Jewish tradition that Elijah would proceed the coming of the Messiah. And so they're saying, this, you got to be Elijah, come back to life. We now know that that person proceeding, coming back to Jesus' coming, was actually John the Baptist and not Elijah. And still others say the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. 
And the reason people might, you know, Jeremiah gets the nod in this situation is there was a non-biblical legend that Jeremiah was going to bring uh, glory back to the temple before the Messiah came. And so that's why they were thinking him. Or it could be one of the prophets. In other words, there are lots of opinions out there, ideas based on cultural views of their day. Now, what you should notice here, which I think is interesting, is that all of these comparisons to Jesus, who they're saying, you are this, are complimentary. They're very nice. They're high praise. To say you are John the Baptist, who crowds are going out to and, um, and, and considered a great man, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, or, uh, yeah, Elijah, that's high praise. They're, the problem is they're saying, you are this great thing, Jesus. These are great people, and you're right on par with them. What they don't realize at there is that he's even above them. He's even greater than they are. And it's much like the world today, is it not? So many people in our world like Jesus. They're fine with Jesus. They just don't like Christians. They don't like us, right? They love Jesus. He's all about helping the poor. He's all about healing the sick. He's all about, you know, caring and love and all those things. But the problem is, do they really know the Jesus of the Bible? The historical, biblical Jesus. I think, friends, it is my fear that people, even in this church, would begin to like a Jesus that never really existed or follow a Jesus that never really existed. We cannot construct a Jesus to our liking. We have to be careful that it comes out of God's word and who he actually was. George Bernard Shaw, a famous Irish writer, he said this. He said, God made man in his own image, and man has returned the favor in our day. And we're making Jesus into our own image. And so many people have recreated Jesus and created these false notions of who he is. Not just outside of this wall, outside of this church. It's in churches, it's even inside of here where we have false notions of Jesus. Let me give you some examples. First one I'll call is the Walmart Jesus. This is a Jesus you can go to to get everything that you want. He's open 24 hours, very convenient. He is always there just waiting to serve you with a smile. He's always nice, and he always says good things to you. Always. Walmart Jesus. We got the retirement plan, Jesus. All you got to do is to follow him, the program that he sets up, which is attend church, give a little, serve a little, read your Bible, and then you are guaranteed an eternal return on your investment. Right there, it's retirement plan, Jesus. There's the guru, Jesus. This is a Jesus who sits on the same plane as Buddha, Muhammad, and Gandhi, and all the other religious leaders of the day. Uh, he's just one of the peaceful guys, the sages wearing robes, floating, those kind of things. Uh, we're going to get personal here. We got the right-wing American patriot Jesus, okay? This is the Jesus who only watches Fox News and... <laughs> and believes that the sole path to revival is turning the country's map from blue to red. We also have the left-wing radical liberal Jesus. All right, this is the Jesus who only cares about love, social issues, and never talks about sin and personal repentance. Got quiet in here. I'm just going to leave. I mean, we're going to move on. <laughs> There's a Dr. Phil life coach Jesus. This is the guy who's all about the practical 12, stealth, uh, 12 steps, self-help programs. You know, pull up your bootstraps. You can do it yourself. Discipline Jesus. Uh, there's prosperity Jesus. 
this is Dr. Phil's radical cousin. Uh, this is a Jesus who only wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and successful in life. And if you're not, it means you haven't prayed enough or you don't have enough faith. Mm. There's the post-church Jesus. I have seen this one a lot lately. This is the, all I need is Jesus, a couple friends, and a latte. I don't need the institutional church. It's just me and Jesus. But the struggle with that is Jesus doesn't call us to be apart from faith when he calls us in faith to be apart from his people, his followers, his church. We are his bride. I could go on and describe more Jesuses, but you get my point. And the question that I have for you based upon that is, where are you personally? Not anybody out there because you're like, oh, well, those aren't me. Where are you in danger of believing the wrong Jesus. Because there are parts of those that are true, right? And there's parts of those that are not true. So where are you in danger of believing the wrong Jesus? What I find interesting is that when the disciples come to him with all these opinions of who they think Jesus is, and, and, and none of them seem to hit the nail on the head, nobody knows for sure, Jesus doesn't spend any time deconstructing any of those. He doesn't even address them. He doesn't address why he's not John, why he's not Elijah, why he's not Jeremiah, or any of the other prophets. What Jesus does instead is he asks the disciples a personal question. A, he takes the theoretical from way up in the clouds, and he makes it intensely personal. Verse 15. But what about you, Jesus asks. And here's our question. Who do you say I am. Who do you say that I am? Friends, the most important question you'll ever answer in your life isn't who am I going to marry. It's not what should I do with the rest of my life. It's not even who am I. This is the most important question that we'll ever have to answer. Most important question I thought I had to answer truly was sitting in a hospital with my daughter who was recently diagnosed with brain cancer. And they, had to, they gave us choices of what type of treatment that we would use. All of them were experimental. So if it was going to work, this is the only way. And I remember sitting down with the doctors. I asked friends of mine to come in. Dave Kelly was there. Uh, Dave Piscatelli. Apparently, I really trust people named Dave. Um, and they were there, and they were helping me in this situation. And we were looking over the options that we had. We did know that there was no known, known cure for her. And so we're sitting there, and I remember them saying, well, we could try this. And then I would ask, well, how long does that prolong life? Or how, what will that do to cancer? And like, well, we don't know. Will it help it? We don't know. Will it hurt it? Uh, we don't know. Okay, and then we have this other option. What about this one? What do we know about that one? Well, we don't really know much, but you could try it. And these are things like poison, like pills that I have to wear gloves on, and yet I'm putting them in my daughter's mouth. And we're sitting at that table, right? And I am feeling the weight, the absolute weight of this is the most important decision I'm going to make in my life. It's life and death. And I was stressed, and they keep giving me this, and I, I burst into tears. And here's a picture of my daughter at the time who reached out seeing me crying, and just we, we got used to taking pictures at that time, and grabbed my head and then just tried to make me laugh, asking me, why are you sad, Dad? She didn't know that she was dying at that time. 
And I thought the decision that I was making in that moment was life and death for her. Inevitably, my daughter was so stubborn of a little girl that she wouldn't swallow the pills. So we went with no treatment, right? Just radiation is what we ended up doing. And, and we went with no treatment. And if you know our story, you know she passed away. And you know that I, re- I realized then that the most important decision I was making was not in a hospital room. The most important decision that I was making in my life I had made years before when I answered the question, who is Jesus? And because I had answered that as a human being and as a dad, I imparted that to my daughter. And the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is what saved my daughter in the sense that she is with him right now for eternity. So you have a lot of important questions you're going to deal with in life. You're going to deal with who am I, should I marry, what should I do, who am I? Those are big questions. I'm not trying to downplay them. I'm just saying the most important, the biggest question you're ever going to ask in your entire life is the question Jesus asked of his disciples. It defines every other question that comes after. It's intensely important and intensely personal. Here's how Jesus, um, here's how Simon responded to Jesus' question. Verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Now Peter's responses here, his response is remarkable for a few reasons. Number one, (laughs) he answered correctly. So, What's great about Peter, and it's worth noting here, that he doesn't always answer correctly. He's Mr. Foot-in-Mouth Disciple. And so, and this shot, he nailed it. He got it. It was perfect. But here's another reason why it's remarkable. Peter didn't think his way to the confession. He didn't think his way to this understanding of Jesus. The Father guided him there. You guys, I think this is so important. For so many of us, we try to think and we try to reason our way to an understanding of Jesus. And that is good. You will never hear me tell you to shut off your intellect and throw away your intelligence when it comes to following Christ. In fact, we need to put our brains into this situation. There are so many facts, documentation, archaeological discoveries that will take us 90% of the way there. 90%, 90%, we can get there, maybe even 95% of the way there. But at some point, God made it this way where it moves from facts to have to step of faith. And when you step in faith, what is beautiful to, depicted right here with Peter is that God will step up and will reveal himself to you in those moments of faith. He truly will. You cannot think your way all the way to a relationship with Jesus. It takes faith. And in understanding him, Peter got that way. He didn't think his way there. God helped him there. So here's the third and the biggest reason why Peter's response is remarkable. Here it is. This confession was the first confession of its kind in the New Testament. This was the first confession of its kind in the New Testament. Let me explain. The Jews believed that there would be a Messiah that was coming. Every good Jew believed that, right? They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So that wasn't new. The idea that a Messiah was coming wasn't new. People even believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, in John 1, you actually see Andrew. He declares to Peter, we have found the Christ, 
Come and see. So people even saying that Jesus is the Messiah wasn't new. Here's what's new. It's the combination of the two descriptions that Peter puts in this passage. This is the first time it comes out in the New Testament. Peter called him Messiah, which means anointed one, which means Christ. Just so that you know, Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was a title that was given to him, a title of an expectant Messiah that would come and save Israel from the, the tyranny that it was under. So that's what the Messiah is. And he was also called the Son of the Living God which means revelation of the living Father. So here's what Peter is saying. He's saying both one, you are the Messiah and God. You are both. That, friends, the idea that God is the Messiah was revolutionary. It was groundbreaking. It was earth-shattering. No one expected it at all. Jesus, God himself, would come down as the promise Messiah was mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus is Messiah God, period. That's it. That's the answer to the question, who do you think I am? Who is he? Jesus is Messiah God. So when Peter spoke up with those words, Jesus is like, boom, you nailed it, Pete. Drop the mic, shut the front door. I mean, that is it. Jesus is Messiah God. And after 2,000 years, this mind-blowing revelation kind of sounds like old news, doesn't it? Like, I bet you there's some of you in here going, Jake, that's it? That's all you got for me today? <laughs> yes, that's it. Okay? Because that is amazing. It is not old news. It is the best news, people. It is the good news. It is the gospel. It doesn't get old. You should hear it over and over and over and over again. The good news is that God himself decided he was going to save us from our situation. So he comes down here not in the way that anybody expected. They didn't expect him to come in the way of a servant. They, didn't, they expected him to be a general. And he comes and he puts his arms out on a cross and he takes the weight of our sin and he made a path for us to find salvation, to find right relationship with God the Father through his sacrifice. That is the good news, great gospel. It is the biblical, historical answer to the question, who am I? Messiah God. That's who Jesus is. He is Messiah God. Now, it's one thing to say that you are this or that. It is quite the other thing to actually be that. So I could say that I am the queen of England. I could say I'm the queen of England. I could go get a big pink fuzzy hat and I can go to a horse race. I got my best British accent and I could get, you know, the, 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 you know, the parade wave. I could do it, the Disney princess wave. I could do that, but I'm still not going to be the queen of England because it's just not the way that it is. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. This is amazing. You've got to hear this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or (laughs) something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about he being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you've ever heard a preacher use the term liar, lunatic, and Lord when referring to Jesus, this is where it came from. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, he's saying based on the claims that Jesus made, that we have documented that he made, Jesus is either a liar, meaning that he is trying to trick everybody to believing that he is something that he knows that he is not, so he's deceiving us. He's either a lunatic, that he actually believes that he's something that he's not, that he believes that he's God, or that he is God, and he is who he says he is. Those are your only three options on deciding who Jesus is. A liar, a lunatic, or a lord. The Lord. And I choose to believe the latter. Me personally. I choose to call him Lord. And hear me, not just because there are a hundred messianic prophecies that prove that he is. And not just because of the historical documentation that we have of his life by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And not just because we have eyewitnesses accounts of his resurrection of 500 or more people seeing him after he came to life, proving that he is who he says he is. Not only that, I call him Lord because like Peter, it was revealed to me not through flesh and blood, but through a personal encounter with God himself. All of that is why I call him Lord. But what matters most, friends, is not that I call him Lord. And it's not that C.S. Lewis calls him Lord. And it's not that anybody else, whatever they think of him, it matters what you think of Jesus. How you answer that intensely personal question, who do you say that I am? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And now, he's still asking the same question. He's asking it right now, today, to you. Who do you say that I am? And if you don't have an answer to that, I want to encourage you to dig in and to lean into figuring out who he is. When you understand who the biblical, historical Jesus is and the salvation power that he has in his life and what he has through his life, I promise you, you're going to be drawn in like I've been drawn in and like so many have been drawn in here. And if that's you and you want to know more about Jesus, you're just kicking the tires of this thing or maybe your girlfriend brought you and you're just here and you're like, dang, this is hot in here. I want to get out in the sun, you know? (laughs) I encourage you to check the box. I actually dare you 
to check the box on side of that connection card that says this, I want to know more about Jesus. And then we can start in a conversation. It's not gonna be, there will not be any raising of the hands or come forward and kneel at the altar. We're not doing that. It take, this is a big, big decision. This is the biggest decision you could possibly make. We wanna talk with you through it and answer whatever questions you have. So if that's you, check the box. Check the box. I want to know more about Jesus. I personally believe he is Messiah God. I've dedicated my life to that. And so have so many here. The passage goes on. Jesus makes a declaration based on Peter's revelation. Uh, Verse 18, Jesus continues, and I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I love that. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's lots of imagery here. We got gates, we got keys, we got a rock. Um, What's interesting is that this is probably one of, if not the most debated passage in all of Scripture. This actual section right here. Uh, And I'm not going to go into the details of it uh, because we don't have the time. I'd love to, but I'm going to give you a 30,000 foot level of what this means. It all boils down to the word rock. And what did Jesus mean when he said the word rock? On this rock, I will build my church. There are two basic interpretations that people have of this. Number one is that, that Jesus was talking about the rock as Peter himself. And that makes sense, that he will build his church on Peter um, because Peter's the one who kind of kicks everything off. And it's a total play on words in the sense that Peter means petros, which means detached stone or little rock. And so that's actually Peter's name is rock. Um, and, And this is where the traditional Roman interpretation is. Catholics believe that that Peter was the first pope that he was the first rock. He was anointed by Jesus, and therefore there's been a lineage of popes throughout the years, but Peter was the first one, and this is where he was commissioned in this actual passage at this time. And Peter was a rock, just so that you know. He did a lot of great things. Uh, In fact, he was the one to preach salvation for the very first time on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. He was the first one to preach to the Samaritans um, in Acts uh, eight. He was the first one to preach to the Gentiles the gospel in Acts 10. And so Peter was a rock, but it is hard for me personally to believe that the church is built on any other person other than Jesus Christ. And so for me, I lean towards the latter interpretation. And that is this, that the rock in which Jesus was referring to is Peter's confession. The confession itself, that Jesus, Messiah God, is what he's going to build his church upon. That statement, that truth. The word rock right there is Petra, bedrock, massive stone. And this massive stone, I believe, is the truth that Jesus is Messiah God. In fact, what's crazy is Peter himself later calls um, Jesus, uh, or say that, yeah, Peter later calls Jesus the chief cornerstone, right? The stone on which the church is built. And he says that we are all little stones built on top of him. And when you think of church, so many of us think of buildings and steeples and stained glass. And if you attend here, wood, apparently wood, you think of that. But the church is not made of brick and mortar. The church is made of people. And the one thing that unites the church through all history, 
right? Since the church first started early on, before there was even a Bible, the church first on, before it got going, before there was the New Testament, before any of that, throughout the ages, through all the different cultures that we have even today in the different churches and, and, and the different people that we have in here, the one thing that unites us is Jesus. It's the truth that he is Messiah God. That's the one thing unites us as the church. That's what the church is. And let me end where I started. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail in their mission. All right? Remember this picture in the very, very beginning? We threw it up there. This is Caesarea Philippi. This is where the idols sat. This is the temple of Caesar was just above. And again, remember, picture Jesus standing there right in front of this cavern. What's the name of this cavern? The gates of hell. That's what it is. And I don't know if Jesus was standing there, but I think it would be amazing if he's standing in this exact spot, smack dab going, there's my illustration right now. The gates of hell, whatever comes out of there, the darkness of the world will not stand against us. And you may be sitting here, and in this moment, all of a sudden he's saying to his disciples, you may think we're underdogs, but we're not. Hell couldn't even stop us. All this idol worship, all these other gods, they couldn't stop us. I love that, you guys. Don't you love that? I love that. And Jesus, I, I, hope, I don't know if you noticed this, when he gives this analogy, where are the gates? They're in hell, right? There's gates in hell. Typically, we think of heaven. We think of church as the gated community, don't we? Like we're the ones playing it safe. Let's close ranks. Let's huddle up. Let's protect ourselves. We don't want any evil getting in. We're just going to hold off till Jesus comes back. That is not the picture that Jesus is painting here. He's saying we are ambassadors. In fact, he's even foreshadowing his death and resurrection in this, and he's commissioning us to go out on mission to make disciples and bust down gates, is what he's saying, to grab those who are POWs caught in enemy territory and bring them back to life by rescuing them through what? The gospel. That's the rock. And he points to keys. That's the point of the keys as well. The keys means to unlock the gospel. It is Christ commissioning the church to do what? To hang on until Jesus comes and just hope that we're going to not be corrupted? No, you guys. That is not the church. We are to kick down gates of hell. Hell could not stop us. The church is to be about advancing the gospel, reaching people who have never been reached. The church is to be fighting for the oppressed. It is to be helping the hurting, providing for the poor. That's what the church should be doing. We should be rescuing captives and kicking down gates. Friends, that is who we are. And the only way we can know who we are is by knowing who he is first. We will never know our mission outside of him. You will never know your purpose in life outside of him. The only way we know who we are as a church and as individuals is through the perspective of who he is. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter got it right. He said, you are Messiah God. You are both God and you are here to save us. Friends, that is not old news. That doesn't get old. That is the best news. It's the good news. It is the gospel. And you should be encouraged by it today because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray.